and, and turn with me uh, to Esther chapter 2. Uh, Esther chapter 2. That's where we're picking it up here this morning. Uh, we're going to be in Esther 2. We're continuing in this new series. Uh, walking. We're going to walk all the way through the book of Esther over the next couple of months. Uh, continuing to look for and hopefully see, I, I say hopefully see, uh, the hand of God at work, not just in the heavens and not just in the work of creation, uh, not just in His transcendence as our sovereign Creator, uh, but, but in His eminence, in His proximity, in His closeness as, uh, as the sustainer of all things at work here and now in the realities of life here on the ground. That's what we want to see. And so I'd ask you now to stand with me as we look together uh, to God and His Word to us this morning. It says, Esther t- chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 1, and we're going to uh, go through the first seven verses here to start. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa the citadel whose whose name was Mordecai, a son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would help us here today, Lord, that you would give us clarity, that you would make your word come alive to us in our hearts, that you would shape and mold and fashion us into the likeness of your son, even through a passage like Esther 2. Lord, would you do that? Would you prove your power to us today? By using your word to transform us. By using it to shape us. To break us out of those rhythms and patterns that need to be broken. God, would you do that for us? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. One of the questions that I uh, often wrestle with. And I have found this to be true, just for the record, in every age and stage of life that I've reached so far. So as a, as a young child, as a uh, growing up in the church, that's my, te- that's my testimony. I grew up in the church, had parents who were very, very faithful to, 
to, to nurture my walk with the Lord from the very beginning. So as a child, as a, as a sort of youth age, student age, high school, middle school age kid, I, I wrestled with this question. As a college student, I really went to like battle in my own heart over some of these things. And as an adult, I, as, a, as, a, as a young, as like a newlywed, and then as a young father, and now as a father who's got a married daughter and a daughter in college. That doesn't seem like that should be possible, but whatever. That's just a little, that y'all weren't meant to hear that. That was supposed to be an internal dialogue that I'm still working through. Anyway, um, the question, this question has proven true in every single stage of life so far. And, and it's, it's just, it's very simple as what, like what is God calling us to in this Christian life? I keep waiting to have perfect clarity on that. I keep waiting for that day where it's like, oh, there it is. But I still find myself asking that question as the world around us that we inhabit, as it shifts and as it changes, as, the, as we sort of ride the waves of culture with all of its ebbs and flows, all of its peaks and valleys, the ups and downs of it all. What is it? that God is calling us to in this new covenant, new creation identity in Christ. And Esther too, I genuinely believe, gives us some perspective. Because, because in it all, and through it all, what it reminds us is that God, even if He's not mentioned, we've said this before, He's not even mentioned in the book of Esther, and even if, there's, even if He's not called into the equation by the people in the story, at no point are you going to see Esther and Mordecai stop and pray. But even if He's not brought into it by us, what we can see and what we need to hold on to is that He is always, <laughs> always at work. And we need to remember that as we move into this. Esther 2 is a weird passage. The truth is, Esther is a weird book. You see, God's Word speaks to the realities of life. It speaks to us. It meets us here in the realities of our very real experience. It meets us in the tension of who we are in the place where we are. That when the shadows, right, when the shadows fall on us, our God is not only present, but our God is at work. That's what we're going to see in these verses. And so in that way, Esther too, even with all the harm and all the hurt in the story, it still gives us a story of hope. And, and, we, start, and we start again with the king. We're, we're going to meet Esther and Mordecai. They're, they're coming. Uh, but, but right now it still feels like it's sort of the king's story that's being told. Chapter 1 showed us Ahasuerus throwing, we call it as a six-month keg party there in, in Persia for himself. He's, he's, he's living the good, he is, he is living his best life, right? That's what he's doing. He's got the money, he's got power, okay? He's got the status, he's basically the prototype for everything the world tells us to pursue. That's the reality of who this guy is. He's the pinnacle of human achievement. He's got the wine. He's got the women. And from the world's perspective, he is winning. I mean, that's what's happening. He's, he's winning. But what we saw in chapter 1 is that his ego cost him his wife. And so now, like we all have to do in our lives, he has to deal with the fallout 
of his sin. Like, remember, the sin always has fingers. Like, sin is never content to just stay in one course. Man, it's got like a river with all sorts of streams. It, it gets out into all the different parts of life. And so now he has to deal with that fallout. And so verse 1 says this. It says, After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. That word for remembered there is critical to our understanding of what's happening here. That word for remembered doesn't mean that he had forgotten her. It doesn't mean that they've moved on from her. It wasn't like a post-party amnesia that he'd been in for a while. What we see in the Old Testament is that when that word is used, when that word is used, it's often used with God. And when God remembers the same word, when He remembers someone, what we see that language of remembering, it's a sign of affection. That's what it is. When he remembers, it's a sign of affection. It usually means that God's about to move in grace and mercy toward that person. It's what we see. It's exactly the same word that we see in Genesis 8, where it says that God remembered Noah, okay? That he remembered Noah. It's not that he had forgotten about him on the ark. It's not that he closed the door and just moved on for those 40 days and 40 nights when he was shut up in that ark. It's that he was, what is what it means? It means that God was faithful toward him. That's what it means that he remembered him. It can seem, and we can, we can confess this, it can seem that God often takes a passive sort of posture in our lives. I've had enough conversations and I've experienced enough in my life to have felt that thing and to heard your expressions of it, that God is sort of passive in our lives. Like, like, so, like providence is sort of this sort of passive providence, but it's not that, right? It's more. It's, it's God, when God remembers, it's his heart toward his people. And that's what the king is feeling right now in chapter 2 towards his banished wife. He's cooled off a little and he's having second thought. And so we don't, we don't know exactly how long it's been. We're not given that answer since that fateful night, but it's been some time. And the irony of it all, we remember we saw a lot of irony in chapter 1. Here it is in chapter 2. The irony of it all is that in all of his regret, he's really just caught in a prison of his own making. Remember, he's the one who sent her away. Right? He issued the irrevocable decree that she can't ever come before him again. That's what he signed. He signed that paper. And while he might be tempted to blame, as most of us are, like when we make a mistake, we want to blame everybody around us, he's probably tempted to blame those advisors who, who gave him that advice, none of, him, uh, none of whom actually show up in chapter 2, by the way. You should notice that. Those were the wise men back in chapter 1. Now it's, now it's something different. At the end of the day, though, it's still his decision. And so we can learn something from our king in this one. Not our, not, well, not our king. We can learn something from the king in chapter 2 about personal responsibility. As we see this man, he has to deal with the backlash of his own choices. He's like the guy with the really bad tattoo, right? You've seen, it's okay, you've seen him. He's out there, right? He's got, and this one would say, I've got some regrets, Okay. But we see, here's the thing though, we see no, we see regret, but we don't see repentance. We see regret, but we don't see repentance. Remember, the king can do what the king wants to do. The king can do whatever he wants to do. And so all he has to do is decree something else. He can make a decree that Vashti must only appear before the king, and she would be right back there. But here's the problem, that would cost him his reputation. And he's nothing if not concerned 
about his reputation. So instead, what does he do? He calls a new group of advisors. These are the king's young men who attended him. That's basically his little personal staff. He calls his young men in. These are guys who are trying to earn their place in the kingdom at that point. And their advice sort of, it sort of reflects the priorities of a young man. It's there in verse 2. They say, they say, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. That's their advice. That's their wise counsel to the king. And we need to recognize that it's going to take a lot to make that happen. So here's what they say. Let's appoint officers in all the provinces. There's 127 provinces in the kingdom. And so their recommendation to the king means hiring 127 new imperial employees to go out at least and find these young, beautiful virgins. They tell them, go gather all the beautiful young virgins. There's that qualification again. It's in there twice. They are at least consistent in their shallow priorities, right? And bring them, here's what they say, bring them to the harem in Susa, the citadel. And then after we get them, here's the way, I love the way the rest of this plays out. It's just a beautiful story, isn't it? After we get the beautiful young versions, let's give them a year's worth of cosmetics and see if we can't make them more beautiful. Give them a bunch of stuff to make them look better. Now, what does that sound like? I mean, we got to be honest about what this sounds like, right? Sometimes people have sort of soft-pedaled this story, but we need to acknowledge what this is. If we can't be honest about what's happening here, we'll be lost. Okay, this is nothing more than state-sanctioned human trafficking. All right? That's what is happening. That's what is happening here. It's not flattering. It's not pretty. This isn't a little episode of Persia's Got Talent. That's not what's happening in this story. It's definitely not romantic. All right, It's not a Cinderella story. It is evil. What's happening in chapter 2 is an appalling level of legalized abuse. It is objectively awful. And look at the end of verse 4. Look at what it says about the king and his character. It said, This pleased the king... And he did so. There's an inscription from the ancient city of Persepolis. That's one of the other major cities of Persia. There were four capitals of Persia during this time. Persepolis is another major city in that time. It dates from this time period. They have found this thing. It's a significant, uh, it's a significant piece of what they would call like biblical archaeology. Uh, because it was found in what they call the Queen's Apartment in Persepolis. And I guess they call it that because that sounds better than harem, you know. Harem literally means um, basically off-limits. That's that's sort of what it means, um, that nobody else can touch. They they literally call it, this is what it's called historically, it's called the harem inscription. And here's what it says. The inscription that was plastered on the wall, carved into the wall, says, I am Xerxes, that's our king, that's Ahasuerus. It says, I am Xerxes, the great king, the king of all countries and all languages, king of this great and wide World. I want you to hear that one more time. This is a self-proclamation carved into the wall of the harem in Persepolis. I am Xerxes, the great king, the king of all countries and all languages, king of this great and wide world. I remember watching the movie Rudy for the first time. Anybody? I don't know how much of it's true, but it's a great movie anyway. And as they're, as they're walking out onto the field, do you remember this scene? They're walking out onto the field there at Notre Dame. All the players, and they've had their like pregame speech. they got their super gold helmets or whatever. 
I've got a little bit of a of grudge against Notre Dame right now, but we're, we're, I'm dealing with that. Anyway, and here's what it says. You remember this? They're walking out onto the field, and there's a sign hanging over the door, and they're all slapping it, right? Like taped up fingers or whatever, and they're slapping the sign. Anybody remember what it says? It says, play like a champion today, right? Some of y'all don't look like you know that. But anyway, that, that's what they've got. Play like a champion today. Well, this sign hanging in the harem is significantly different than that. This would have been the last thing that a young woman would have seen on her way out of the harem and into the presence of Xerxes Ahasuerus. Rather than a word of encouragement or inspiration, this sign that hung in the harem was a reminder. It was a reminder to each woman that you don't really matter. And the quicker you come to terms with that, the better it's going to be for you. That's the world, I need you to know, that's the world that Esther finds herself in. A world that says to the young, beautiful virgin, you don't really matter. Now contrast that, remember that, now contrast that with what we see in verse 5. You see, that's where we meet Mordecai. Mordecai's a Jew living in Susa, so he's there in that City and what we know is that it was it was in five it was at five uh, five thirty eight B C that King Cyrus all right this is this king's grandfather it was in five thirty eight B C that he had sent the Jewish people back to Judah you can read about that in Ezra and Nehemiah these are historic things that took place it's about a generation that's about a generation before the events that we see happening. Here in, in Esther. But Mordecai, he's still there. You see, Mordecai is still in Susa. And, and Jews remained in various corners of the empire. They had, they had set here, and we can think of a dozen reasons why. Maybe they, had, maybe they had built a house there and they didn't want to give that up. Maybe the work back in Judah looked too hard. There'd been a little bit of a little bit of resistance. Maybe they didn't want to be a part of that. They built homes, they established families, but they were but they were still strangers. Here's the truth. They were still Mordecai is a stranger. He and Esther are strangers living in a strange land. They're caught in this world as sort of perpetual exiles. That's their life. Perpetual exiles. In fact, if you look at verse 6, look at that. If you look at verse 6. A more literal translation might read that there was a Benjaminite who had been exiled from Jerusalem among the exiles who were exiled with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had exiled. Now that's a next level type of redundancy with that word exile, isn't it? I mean, if you turn that in in an English paper, you're getting docked for that. All right, at some point, you've got to change the word. Just do something different, man, to keep my attention. They were exiles. That level of redundancy in that word means that the author wants us to know, the author of Esther wants us to know that Mordecai doesn't belong there. He shouldn't be here. He's in the world, but he's not of the world. And the contrast is striking, man. The king is taking young women for his own pleasure while Mordecai, in a way of, of love and service, has adopted a young woman named Esther into his family. One commentator, considering this contrast, he says this, he says, where Ahasuerus in the palace generally is noted for conspicuous consumption, Mordecai is a model of moderation and care. 
where Ahasuerus spends for his own satisfaction, Mordecai reflects God's concern for the weak by raising his orphaned cousin. In this way, listen, the life of Mordecai, his story to this point, is what we would just simply call countercultural. That's what it would be. He and Esther don't fit. And in another, in another twist of irony, it's Esther's beauty. It's her beauty that catches the attention of her captors. What seems to us to be a blessing for her is what led to her suffering. And so let's look at verse 8. We've got to deal with that. We re- here's what we read in verse 8. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the, to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Esther is the first character, first and only character, who will be introduced with two names. She had two names. She has a Hebrew name, that's the Hadassah, and she has a Babylonian name, which is Esther. And this is, this is, this is another not-so-subtle detail that, that really invites us into the tension that is her life in Persia. There's some conflict over who people think is the real Esther. Is she Hadassah, child of the covenant, or is she Esther, just another pretty face from Persia? And, and that's a tension that, that believers today should be able to recognize. Like, we're called to be in the world, okay? This is where we live, right? This is where my son was showing me the other day. They discovered some Earth-like planet in some galaxy light years away. He was like, what if they find people there? I'm like, I don't know, man. If they find people there, I guess they need to know about Jesus too. Like, I, I don't know what to do with that. But I, I just know that you, you, didn't, you didn't have a vote, like, in which planet. Like, nobody asked you which city you wanted to be born into, what type of family you wanted to be born into, what color your skin would be, what region you would be in. Nobody asked any of that. Nobody gave us any options on that. This is where we live. This is where we work. This is where we go to school, make, make friends and so forth. All that stuff. This is that place. And not one of us, at least at our birth, had any say in where that happened. We are born in this world, but as believers, again, as new creations in Christ, as Christians, we're called to be not of the world. Paul goes to great lengths in Romans 12. And so that's where we find our verse of the year, right? I'm, I'm coming out in Romans 12 every week right now. And we, great lengths in Romans 12 to make this clear as he specifically says, do not be conformed to this world. You've probably heard that one before. Do not be conformed to this world. I love Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of that verse. He says, he says don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. That's what he's saying. That's what it means, don't be conformed to the world. Don't just go with the flow. 
Don't become so well-adjusted. Don't, don't fit in so well that you do it without even thinking. Don't do that. Don't just get swept down the stream of the culture. That's the pressure, isn't it? I mean, can we, we can, this is a church where you can be honest, all right? You don't, you, nobody came in here perfect this morning. I know some of y'all wrestled kids. I know some of you fought with your wife or husband. I, I know that, okay? That you don't have to, Sunday is the worst day right? It's the hardest morning all week. So I know that, that you do not have to pretend to be perfect here. It's easy. The natural drift for us is to just simply fit in. But if you look at Jesus, right, in John 17, there's this scene in John 17, it's called his high priestly prayer. And he's praying with his disciples this is just prior to his arrest and crucifixion. And so you can kind of visualize this as a, as a that's a pretty intense moment, right? I mean, Jesus isn't confused. He knows what's about to happen. Like He knows what's coming for him. And he chooses in that moment not to pray that it wouldn't hurt, not to pray that, not to pray that, that, that they would just let him go. No, what does he do? He prays for his disciples. You can kind of see this. He's praying. He knows what's coming. He knows what he's about to endure on our behalf, right? Taking our sin, taking our guilt, taking my shame at the cross. And here's what he says to his heavenly Father. Listen to this. He, he, says, he says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. And then he says this. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. The son of man facing the cross. He pauses right now, knowing all of that is coming. He pauses and he asks God, he said, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And then he says this. Here's verse 18. This is John 17, verse 18. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. I would love nothing more than to unpack that verse for the next six weeks. We're not. We're going to continue in Esther. But as you sent me, this is Jesus talking. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Our temptation so often is just to keep our heads down. It's to mind our business, to do our jobs, raise our families, and maybe, just maybe, if we do that well enough, our lives will be a witness that will somehow validate the profession of faith that we make in Jesus. That is not the way Jesus designed the walk of discipleship, okay? Jesus doesn't pray for us to hide. He does not pray for us to fit in. He is sending us out into the world. David Mathis says this. He says that for Jesus being not of the world isn't the destination, but the starting place. It's not where things are moving toward but what they're moving from. And Jesus knows it's not going to be easy for you. Like, He knew that. He knew it would not be easy. He knows that it will, he, here's what he, he knows it will actually be very, very costly for you. One of the most difficult prayers, can I lay this out there for you? One of the most difficult prayers that I pray, that Laurie and I pray for our kids, that we pray every night for our kids, that, that we pray for our, I'll just tell you, college students is when we pray for you. One of them, and it's a difficult prayer to pray for you. I pray this for every single one of our members in our church all the time. You want to know what it is? Some of you are not going to like me after this. That's okay. I pray that you will not fit in. 
That's what I, and I know that every bit, every, every ounce of your being makes you, why? Dude, that ain't cool. I'm supposed to, oh, I need to blend with the culture. I need to work from within. That's fine. You can do it, but I pray that you're not part of it. And I realize that's going to cause you angst. That's going to cause you heartache. That's going to cause you pain. I hate praying for pain. But God uses that pain sometimes. Really, a lot of us need to remember that the message we were sold about Jesus isn't really the message that Jesus was telling about himself. We were sold the idea that coming to him would mean a good and happy life, whatever that means. But if we look at Scripture, if we look at Scripture and the witness of biblical history, we have to, at a sort of foundational level, understand that the gospel isn't about the good life, it's not about the American dream, it's not about your health, your wealth, or your happiness. Which, by the way, is, is, not, is not very likely. That message is grossly, and I would say violently, unbiblical. And so again, meeting us here in the fray, chapter 2 of Esther shows that God isn't blind or indifferent to the realities of life on the ground. He's literally written a story that's about as dark as possible and given it to us to interpret. And in fact, if we can read this with our eyes open, we'll actually see the hand of God at work in it all. It's, it's that God can be found in... Think about this. <laughs> that God can be found at work in a harem in Persia. The author gives us hints all along the way. The author's dropping these breadcrumbs for us to follow. We, we see it there in verse 9 where we're told that Haggai, who had charge of the women, it says that the young woman pleased him and won his favor. We aren't given any indication of what Esther did to win that favor. She didn't want to be there. There is no reason for us on any level to assume that she acted inappropriately while she was there. One writer said this, that Esther sought neither entry to the harem nor advancement within it, yet both came to her. Esther didn't sign up for this. She didn't fill out an application. She didn't grow up dreaming of becoming a, 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 a pagan king sex object. That's not what she wanted. Ultimately, she's going to, ultimately she's going to be elevated to the throne, but she's not there yet. Down in verse 17, it says that the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So the royal crown sat on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. But again, she didn't go looking for that. And she didn't want that. None of, none of us in here would want that story. Like, there's not a soul in here who would want what she got. We, like, we would Liam Neeson our way through it. If, if, like, if somebody tried to take one of our daughters like this, we are making that phone call, man. I don't, I don't, I don't have a lot of money. And honestly, if I got to be honest, I don't have a lot of skills, but I will call every soul that I know, and we're going to hunt you down and find my kid. Nobody would sign up for this level of spiritual abuse, emotional abuse, physical abuse, of this level of psychological manipulation. The stress and the strain on both body and soul. I want you all to hear this. This is a hijacked word in our culture today. This is real trauma. This isn't my boyfriend broke up with me. This is real. This isn't I have tough professors. This isn't that. Like, this is real trauma. And yet, what we see, this is, this is the beautiful thing, man. Under the surface, and even right there in the fragments of her broken life, is that there is something greater at work within her. We see this sort of supernatural strength 
at work in what remains. There's a sustaining power at work. And so what Esther 2 is showing us, the story it's really telling, is not one of Esther's great victory. It's not one of Esther's great triumph, but of the ever-present hand of God at work there in the wreckage. It's that even as we, even as we feel grief, and even as we feel sadness for what has been taken from her, her youth, taken, her innocence, taken, her dreams of love and a future robbed from her, all that's been taken by a king who cares only for himself, only for his own pleasure, a reality that is still far too common today. The unfortunate truth is that her story is, I mean, it's not all that unique. And so we can feel sad for what's been lost. We should and we should and can feel grief for this young girl. The Bible meets us right there in that sadness. Remember, remember, God is not surprised by or indifferent to the darkness of this fractured world. Like he's not. Sometimes we can convince ourselves that he is, man. We can sometimes we can convince ourselves that God is is somewhere far off, and, and if anything, he's just not interested in what we've got going on. But we can only maintain that mindset. We can only maintain that mindset if we forget the cross. That's the truth. You can only begin, you can only believe that God isn't interested in your life if you forget the cross. For, so we need to remember that that's the calling for us to today. We need to remember how the cross speaks not just to the sacrifice of Jesus, but to the sacrifice of Jesus for us. It reminds us in all its brutality, even as the sky fell dark and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, that God makes even those who are his enemies serve his plans and his purposes. These young men, the young men given this terrible advice, And this moron king accepting it. They remind us. Who do they remind us of in the New Testament? Don't they remind us a little bit of Caiaphas? Doesn't it sound like that? I've got a plan. Would it be better for one man to die than everybody? He didn't know how right he was. It reminds us of Caiaphas and the chief priests who thought they were clever and righteous for killing King Jesus. God was at work even in that. Even in that charade of a trial happening right there in Jerusalem. God was at work still weaving His plan of redemption. Still working to bring about His purposes for His glory and for our good. Listen, Esther 2 shows us a hint of that. And it also shows us how God works through the weak... I want you to hear this. It shows us how God works through the weakest people to accomplish His greatest purposes. He moves in power in our weakness. So much of what we have celebrated both in our culture and I would dare say even within the church as it relates to strength and leadership is not biblical strength. It's just not. God moves in power in our weakness. Some of us struggle to believe that, man. We struggle to believe that God can do anything in us. But remember, it was when Jesus was lowest that he accomplished his great salvation. It was when he was emptied, when he had emptied himself. That's Philippians 2, right? That he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. 
He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the good news for us. It's not that he comes riding in on a shiny white horse. It's that he got carried out. Dead for us. Placed in a tomb for us. It also reminds us of this. Maybe you, maybe you knew all that. Maybe you've heard all that. It's, it's possible. You could have. It might even be probable that you've heard that. But there's something more to it. You see, when, when life brings suffering as it did for Esther... And as it does for us, it actually helps us to identify with Christ. It helps us, like suffering enables us to to better identify with our Savior who came as a suffering servant. A few years ago, I I read a book called Endurance, which I would recommend to every human being. It's called Endurance. It's a little long. It's definitely, uh, definitely kind of dense, but it's about a man named Ernest Shackleton. Uh, he was the captain, uh, Ernest Shackleton was the captain of a 20th century, uh, it was called the Imperial Trans-Antarctic Expeditions. This is the early 1900s, uh, sailboats, not engines, and, and, all, he was, and, and so they're going out to try and explore Antarctica. That's what they're doing. I don't know why. I don't know why. That seems like a mistake, right? Even with airplanes and stuff today, I'm still cool just letting Antarctica kind of be, all right? But that's what they were doing. Ernest Shackleton is one of the greatest human leaders and survivors that that history has ever seen. Uh, But as he was recruiting men to join in that journey, and to recruit men for that journey, he posted an advertisement in a newspaper. And I want you to hear what the words of that advertisement said. It said this, Men wanted for hazardous journey, low wages, bitter cold, Long months of complete darkness, constant danger, listen to this one, safe return, doubtful. And then the last thing says, honor and recognition in event of success. I don't know what it says about the early 1900s, but like 5,000 men showed up. And respond to that advertisement. So I don't know what was happening at home in the early 20th century, but it was kind of rough in those days. This is an early example of truth and advertising right there. Um, the one phrase in there that gets me is safe return, doubtful. One writer, he was considering this whole thing. He said, everything that is hazardous about the gospel is in plain sight in the gospel. It goes on to say everything that we should be aware of, the pitfalls, the dangers, the opposition, the pushback, the persecution is right there, not only in Scripture's words about the gospel, but in the gospel action itself. You see, our Savior, our Savior died. And the call of the Christian is not just to come and find truth, justice in the American way. It's not some sort of Superman faith. He calls us and he says to us, here's what Jesus says, that if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Here's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said about that. He said, when Christ calls a man, He bids him come and die. 
But unlike Shackleton's warning, here's, here's the difference. They're similar, they're similar advertisements, aren't they? Unlike Shackleton's warning, here's what Jesus promises us. Don't miss this. Jesus promises to bring us home. Like for us, for the children of the living God, saved by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, regardless of our present circumstances. And y'all, I know, I know, I know that some of our present circumstances right now are not what we want them to be. I get that, I promise you. But regardless of that, here it is. A safe return is guaranteed. You see, we aren't, we, we aren't through with Esther. It's, it's just chapter 2. I, we're, I mean, honestly, we're just meeting her. And yet she's already showing us something beautiful. Because even in her suffering, right, even in the trauma, she's showing us the faithfulness of our God. She's showing God's steadfast love and faithfulness to His people. What God's doing in Esther 2 and it's a weird chapter. But what he's really doing in Esther 2 is he is giving each and every one of us who call upon his name, he's giving us a reason to hope. For that reason, for that reason, we should give him praise. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that you don't give up on us. Thank you that you don't give up on me. Thank you that you don't, you don't, you, if we could learn to see ourselves through the eyes of, of our loving Father in heaven, we would have a better understanding of what love really is. And so I pray that you would forgive us for those times where we don't believe. Forgive us for those times where we doubt. Forgive us for trying to hide and, and just fit in. Lord, I pray that you would Lord, help us to look different. Help us to look like Jesus. That's a dangerous prayer. I'm not praying it lightly. I am hesitant. I am praying that with trepidation. Help us to look like Jesus in the world. I know what they did to Him. I know what they did to Him. Lord, I pray that You would count us worthy to walk that same path. Help us to pick up our cross, deny ourselves, and follow Him. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.